listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome back to Radio Free Philosophy. For a long time, we've been regaling you and entertaining you, I hope, and maybe informing you with our broadcasts about philosophy. As you know, I'm Bob Uricu, and I'm usually online with Professor Kevin Brown. This time, we'd like to switch our format a bit, and I'd like to give you some insights into the mind of Kevin Brown. So I'll interview him and hope that you will profit from that interview. You'll know more about the person who's been entertaining you and informing you and, and illuminating you all these months. So. Professor Brown, let me start by asking you, what first attracted you to philosophy, and where did you study philosophy? Well, thanks for this uh, opportunity to uh, sort of switch the tables and uh, get a little more personal, and uh, next week I'll return the favor. I guess what really motivated me to get interested in philosophy was actually getting interested in religious questions, which I suspect a lot of our students uh, find most interesting as well. I started thinking in high school about um, uh, you know the nature of religion and God and existence and all that and at the time I had no idea that people actually did this. It was only when I took a, a course as a freshman in college uh, called Introduction to Religious Studies that I sort of discovered much to my surprise and uh, excitement that, that people actually thought about these questions and wrote about them and so that's what really got me interested in philosophy. Uh, I read William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, and of course he was also a, a renowned philosopher as well as a psychologist. And so that sort of let me cross over into this new and, to me, uh, unknown field. And then um, I minored in philosophy uh, as an undergraduate at University of Kentucky, and then decided to take up graduate studies. And then. Uh, finally finished the degree at the University of Louisville in uh, 1995 and then started teaching philosophy. Well, if you're like me, you look back at our college years and there are a sea of faces out there who taught us, but there are some really bright lights among our faculty, our cherished professors. So who were your most influential teachers when you set about to study philosophy? Well, let's see, two of them leaped to mind immediately. Uh, pretty much without question. Uh, the first would be uh, the instructor who taught my Introduction to Philosophy class uh, as a freshman, Andrea Reed, and I have the good fortune now to uh, call her a colleague of mine uh, at, at the University of Louisville. And uh, she was uh, you know, a very enthusiastic uh, instructor and really did a good job of introducing the concepts to somebody who was probably already receptive, but it certainly helped to have somebody who was uh, very enthused and, and made it uh, interesting. And then the other one that, uh, that I think back on uh, 
was a professor at University of Kentucky, uh, Dallas High, who introduced me to Wittgenstein, who became a very uh, influential philosopher to me. And what Dallas was able to show me was that philosophers, especially Wittgenstein, could have a sense of humor, which um, was kind of a new thing for me at the time. And he also showed me that philosophers could be very human. I think a lot of times we read academic works and we forget that these people are actually real people and they have real lives, sometimes very interesting, as Wittgenstein's was. And so I, I definitely identified with that method of, of teaching that Dallas was trying to, to do by, by showing the, the person behind uh, the philosophy. Well, you've been in this business for a long time, teaching philosophy. How did you first come to teach philosophy? Where was your first teaching experience, and, and where do you now teach? Well, I guess like a lot of us, we, we start out as graduate teaching assistants, and that's, that was my first experience teaching logic. Uh, and not really knowing exactly how to do it because uh, they don't give you much instruction. A lot of people, of course, don't know this about college instruction, but there's very little pre-training that goes on. You're, you're basically just thrown in front of a class, and you have a professor that will guide you and give you some advice, but basically you just walk into class one day and you're a college instructor. And so you kind of have to um, play the role until it becomes natural. And... Um, I guess in my case it didn't take too long, at least judging by student evaluations. And then, you know, the more I learned, the more I was able to teach other classes. Uh, first as a part-time instructor, kind of uh, uh, working the circuit, going between different schools. And then, uh, fortunately, with a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time, getting a, a, a full-time position uh, teaching online, which I do now. Uh, all my classes that I teach, with a couple of exceptions, are exclusively online. So it's a little strange. I don't I don't see too many students in person. Uh, but it it is an, an interesting way of of teaching, and I think uh, is a way of getting philosophy to a group of people who would otherwise not have the opportunity hmm. to hmm. to learn anything about philosophy. And many people say it's the future of teaching, online teaching. It's more more convenient for students and certainly for faculty. In the course of teaching, you are challenged to teach um, two millennia and a half of philosophy. That's a lot of philosophers. And they all represent, say, a different uh, space on, on the broad spectrum of philosophy. So if one were to look for you on that broad spectrum, where would we find you? What would be your general orientation? What would you call yourself as a philosopher? What school? Um, yeah, this this is a, a, a tough question because so many of the different approaches in philosophy cross over um, and take bits and pieces from others and, and are influenced by different schools of thought. And uh, Wittgenstein himself said that uh, a philosopher is a member of no community. Hmm. And so maybe the, the short answer would be, well, I don't necessarily see myself in any particular community, but I do have a lot of sympathy with, with some of the stuff that the analytic philosophers are doing at least in terms of looking at language and making distinctions, which I think is very useful and practical. But then, in a kind of a, a huge leap away from that, I have a lot of sympathies with the ancient Stoic philosophers, because they were primarily concerned with using philosophy to help people live their lives or mm. be, be happier. And so it's that practical application that I really think is, is important that, of 
course, you don't really get with the analytic tradition, at least as it's conventionally understood. Um, so those would be two two important schools that I would look to as as uh, being very sympathetic with myself. Now, I uh, also have um, you know some particular individual philosophers that I find a lot of sympathy with, but those two schools would be probably at the top of the list. You may have answered half this question, but who are the philosophers who currently influence you the most, the ones who are most active in your mind, the ones you read the most these days, maybe who are currently living? Yeah, this, is, this raises a good question that, um, again, I think a lot of students perhaps don't know. It sounds strange to say, but that there are still philosophers. Philosophers are not just people in the past who've written or discussed these issues, but they're, they're still out there. And I suppose one of my favorite contemporary philosophers is, is uh, a philosopher named Daniel Dennett, who's written extensively on uh, philosophy of mind and evolution and actually just uh, currently published a book on religion. So it, for me, it kind of comes back full circle to where I got into philosophy, uh, studying questions about religion, and I'm still very interested in that. And so he's definitely... Um, I think a very significant figure, probably one who's going to stand the test of time. We talked about last week, how do philosophers uh, do that? Yeah, yeah. I think he's probably going to end up being one of those. Um, and then in other areas, for instance, ethics, uh, I really like the work of uh, James Rachels, who is no longer living, but I think has approached questions of understanding ethical theory in a way that's, that's very accessible and very uh, practical in terms of application. Well, you've given us some very good insights and a peek into yourself. So let's take a break and come back and open up a little more. Excellent. Some thoughts from John Cleese. I am here today to talk about philosophy. Wait, wait, wait. Before you tune out thinking bunch of eggheads talking about ideas that have no bearing on the real world, remember, it was philosophy that inspired men like Martin Luther King and Booker T. Washington to fight against racial prejudice. Philosophy formed the basis of Jane Addams' efforts to make a better life for the poor at Hull House. And it was philosophy that fired up Simone de Beauvoir to demand equality for women. Philosophy is the starting point for making society more just. A message from the Philosophers of America celebrating 100 years of thought. Well, we're back from the break, and we've been dialoguing with Professor Kevin Brown. We've um, got some good insights into how he came to be in philosophy and how, what structures him as a philosopher, what his inclination is. Um, but let's probe a little deeper if we can. You've been teaching philosophy for a long time. Do I dare ask you what your most rewarding experience has been in that long career? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, probably for the past three years I've been telling people that I've been teaching philosophy for ten years, so that can't probably be correct. It's probably been much longer than <laughs> than I think, but that's a good sign, I think. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like I've been teaching for a long time, although I have. I guess one of the, the um, in general, the best experiences is... And it's a, it's a rare experience, but it is wonderful when it happens to see students who really start to open up and get excited about the world that they're being introduced to. Um, I don't know that I can claim all the credit for that because when you start out with good material, it's mm -hmm. it's easy to entice people who are who are open-minded. But it, it's always very rewarding to to see someone 
who has a, a, a genuine interest in questions but doesn't know much about them, and you can introduce them to, to these ideas, and then they start to run with them and really get excited about what you've, what you've shown them, not simply because they're interested in that in and of itself, but because they recognize that that's the beginning. If you can be there at the beginning of that, that interest, uh, you, you know you're not going to see it through to the end, but it is rewarding to, to, to feel like you've uh, helped someone begin the process of, of uh, really learning. Well, that's good. It's been said that every coin has an obverse side. And in the old days when we used to buy records, there was side A and side B. So the flip side of that previous question is, what has been your most frustrating experience in trying to teach philosophy? Yeah, I guess the opposite would be exactly the um, the kind of students that seem resistant to engaging with with new ideas. Not simply that uh, that they're apathetic, although you, you do get some of that, and that's very frustrating too. But it's the cases where you find there's active resistance to to considering something new, and I think a lot of that occurs because uh, students worry that thinking about these questions is going to cause them to change their view or give up something that they that they find very near and dear. Uh, and I, I try to tell them early on that's not necessarily the case, but I, you know, I don't know that, that everyone is convinced about that. I, I remember when I was in Introduction to Philosophy myself, I sat next to a lady who was um, always convinced that the next chapter was going to be the one that that convinced her that God didn't exist and that bothered her and so she didn't want to continue reading mm. and that's that's the kind of thing that you that you get frustrated by not that you know not that uh, we're trying to use philosophy to change people although it, it can be an, a catalyst for change but that's not the point the point is to introduce someone to something that they hadn't thought about before and so it's very frustrating when uh, that is actively resisted. Well, that, of course, and students who plagiarize, that would be number two of my mm. uh, huge frustrations, which I would like to think um, can be prevented, but uh, I've had only limited success with that. These days it's said that um, more than 73% of college students cheat on examinations. I don't, don't know what the percentage is for plagiarism, but certainly it's, it's too widespread to not be a problem. So I can see why that would be a, a very frustrating experience for you because it's academic dishonesty. And if anything, in philosophy, the accent is on, on honesty. Yeah, honest, uh, honest inquiry. Honest and, inquiry. And um, mm -hmm. of course, in, in my case, I might take this a little too personally. Uh, it seems to me that cases of plagiarism are really expressions of contempt for not only the class, mm. but for the person teaching it. Mm. Now that 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 may be taking it a little too far, but um, it it's uh, it it is very frustrating when when that occurs. You know, you've all, I've always admired you for your your willingness to make philosophy real and practical, and I've I've admired you for becoming involved in philosophical counseling. Can you describe your experiences? with this practical application of philosophy and how you, you first became involved in it? Yeah, philosophical counseling is very interesting because in one sense it's, it's a new movement. It's only formally been around for uh, 
30 years at most. But in another sense, it's a very ancient tradition in philosophy because the, the, the ancient philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, even Plato and Aristotle, their primary concern was how do we improve people's lives? And that sort of got lost um, in more recent philosophy. And then it was picked up again in the, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s by a group of philosophers, in, primarily in Europe at, at first, who were trying to think about uh, a new way of offering counseling. And what they came up with was basically what has come to be known as applied philosophy taking the works of philosophers uh, and using them to help people with, with everyday problems. And at first this seems like a stretch. How in the world can Kant's Critique of Pure Reason or Descartes' Meditations be helpful in, in somebody's everyday life? And so what you have to do uh, is, is dig a little deeper to find good application. Now a lot of philosophers in the past, since they wrote explicitly for this purpose, it's pretty easy to, to apply them. Um, I mean, uh, Ep Epictetus wrote a handbook uh, basically for uh, improving one's life. Um, I mean, that was, the, that was the whole aim of it. Uh, Aristotle wrote a work basically to help his own son mm -hmm. uh, live a better life. That was the whole aim of the, of the Nicomachean Ethics, so those are pretty easy to use. But basically what, what philosophical counselors are trying to do is simply say there might be some problems in everyday life that are not medical problems. If you if you went to a psychiatrist, for instance, and you and you were suffering from the loss of a loved one, or you just lost your job, and you were feeling sort of uh, bad about that, if, if you went to a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you might be diagnosed with a clinical problem, depression or or something else. Uh, philosophical counselors simply make the point that there might not be any sort of medical problem there at all. It might just be part of life that is difficult, but can be addressed better by someone who doesn't presume that you have a problem. Uh, there's a nice uh, distinction that, that uh, one of the American practitioners of this uh, uses, a fellow named Lou Marinoff, he uses a distinction between disease and dis-ease mm. with, with a hyphen. Uh, a disease, of course, is something that is that is physiological, um, has, has medical symptoms, and can be treated uh, in a medical uh, model. Dis-ease, on the other hand, is primarily, if not solely, a, a cognitive problem, a problem with one's thinking. And so, mm -hmm. who better to go to to address a problem with your thinking than people who are trained to look at, at thinking, and who mm -hmm. are trained to do critical thinking, and that's what philosophical counselors uh, attempt to do. That's very good. We, um, when we teach philosophy, we often define it for our students as the love of wisdom. And I think the best expression for the love of wisdom is a, a never-ending search for that wisdom through lifelong learning. Now, how would you model that? What's, what's been the pattern of your reading that fuels your quest for wisdom and for understanding? Yeah, I like the, the notion of distinguishing wisdom from, say, intelligence, because, you know, you hear a lot, pe people will say, well, so-and-so is very intelligent, uh, but he doesn't know about much about history. Uh, and what they mean by that is, well, you know, he, a certain person may be very good at computers or maybe a brilliant surgeon, but doesn't know a lot about other areas of life. And I think wisdom is the attempt, which is never 
perfectly realized to learn a little bit about lots of different things. And so I try to keep my reading fairly eclectic for that reason. Mm. Um, I mean, I do read works by philosophers, Dan Dennett, uh, his recent works, uh, James Rachel's, uh, Thomas Nagel. But also I try to keep up with some other fields that, first of all, I just find interesting. But second of all, to, to sort of broaden uh, your, your perspective, I think you need to to expose yourself to more than just your own discipline. So I read uh, works by uh, uh, scientists. I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, contemporary physics. I can't pretend to understand much about it, but I do find it interesting. Uh, so works, you know, by... Uh, Brian Greene on string theory, um, uh, economics, which of course is somewhat related to to philosophy, at least political philosophy, and so the works of Thomas Sowell, who's a, a, a currently an, an economist writing, um, and um, history, of course, which I think you have to have some sort of context in which yeah. to examine, you know, these philosophers that we talk about. You can't really know much about Descartes unless you know the the time period in which he was living, so I think it's important to read uh, history as well. And so all of that, I think, contributes to, uh, you know, a sort of a big picture of how how these ideas connect, and I think, you know, we've talked about before the, the power of ideas and how uh, ideas influence, but to, but to recognize that in, in fields beyond one's own, I think, is, is probably what contributes to um, to the notion of wisdom. And so, of course, also to read works uh, that may be in some sense radically different from your own thinking, works you know, in, in a completely different uh, tradition, one that perhaps you don't find uh, any sympathy with at all, so it's useful to read uh, even works that you know you, you're going to disagree with, if only to get a different perspective. I think that's a good quest for wisdom. You said you became attracted to philosophy as an undergraduate. Maybe we could close with uh, this question. What advice would you give to any of your students today who showed an interest in philosophy and might wish to pursue a, a deeper interest in it? Primarily read books, read philosophical books. Uh, even if you don't think you're understanding them, uh, you've got to start somewhere. So you've just got to, you, you've got to jump in and, and see what you find interesting. In retrospect, it, it was probably obvious to anybody observing at the time that I became hooked on philosophy pretty early on because I took intro in, introduction to philosophy in the spring, and that summer I went out and purchased and read uh, Descartes' Meditations, <laughs> Hume's Treatise of Human Nature, and Kant's Critique of Pure Reason uh, in that summer. Now, I can't pretend to have understood virtually anything of it but the fact that I was motivated uh, was, was, I think, very important. And once you read them once, then you have occasion to go back and read them on a deeper level later, and you, you get more out of them, probably because you've at least gone through them once. And so that would be my first piece of advice. If someone thinks they're interested in philosophy, just go out and buy some books of the philosophers. Don't simply stick to commentaries or textbooks. I mean, those are helpful. But at a certain point, you've got to meet these philosophers, and the only way we have of meeting them and engaging with them is by reading their words and then engage in a dialogue with with the text and find out from there you know, where your sympathies lie and what you might find uh, interesting to pursue beyond that. Hmm. 
I think that's very, very good advice. To become a philosopher, you have to read and read and read. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't seem to be much in vogue today. No, it's not. And uh, I think, you know, part of it is it's it's not uh, the immediate entertainment of uh, video games or watching TV. I mean, you have to take time. It's, it's something that you have to slow down and, and be deliberate about. But, of course, long term, it's very rewarding. And even in the short term, it, it can be very rewarding. Uh, but you have to challenge yourself, I think, a little bit. You have to force yourself to read things that you find difficult. Um, and, of course, that doesn't have to be the only things you read. You can you know, moderate as well, but you, you do have to give yourself a variety. It's, it's like um, you know, having a healthy diet. You have to have a variety of foods in your diet to, to really be healthy. And I think for, for one's mental diet, you have to do the same thing, a, a good variety um, so don't just read one author. Don't just read philosophers. You know, if you're interested in a particular subject, read things outside of that subject. Because what you'll be surprised about is how many connections you make between that subject and the one you're interested in, and how many things you learn because you're getting a different perspective from the one of people in the discipline. Now it's clear to anyone who's taken your courses that you um, you use modern technological communications uh, means to, um, for better or for worse, uh, make your philosophers more attractive to people. Use podcasts, use PowerPoints, and uh, use animation. And here we are using a communications medium right now to talk about philosophy. Do you think that is going to keep people interested in philosophy or make them interested? I hope it would at least entice them to become interested. Um, I, I don't know that, that the technology in and of itself can sustain the interest because I think at a certain point you do have to go back to the text. <laughs> and no amount of flashing glam on PowerPoint or podcasts is, is going to be a, a true substitute for reading Descartes, reading Plato, uh, reading Hume or, or Kant. And that's where the, I guess the true test of, of one's love of the ideas is that you're willing to take time and, and read the book as opposed to just getting the the summary or, or the PowerPoint. I mean that's a good start mm -hmm. and hopefully what we can do with the technology is bring philosophy to people who wouldn't ordinarily have access to it and then give them a taste for pursuing it on their own. I mean at, at best that's really I think what education does is uh, we, we introduce somebody to a subject and we hope that they get enough out of it to, to pursue it on their own uh, with, without our assistance. In critical thinking we say that the, uh, the quality of life is directly dependent upon the quality of thinking. And you have worked so many years and so hard to improve the quality of thinking in your students and everybody comes in contact with you. I just have to say thank you. And we'll close on that note. Thank you for improving the quality of our lives. Well, thank you.